Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 8th, 2022. It's a Sunday in San Francisco. Uh, the city on the Pacific Ocean. If there is a, a place, a country which seems perhaps furthest away from San Francisco, Northern California, it's Israel. And the news today from Israel is familiarly uh, depressing, uh, chillingly familiar. It seems as if every time you look at a headline, it's the same headline for the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, one headline today about Palestinian quote-unquote terrorists arrested for a, a deadly attack. Another headline about an Israeli policeman moderately wounded. I don't quite know how you're moderately wounded, but clearly the, the, the civil war or the uncivil war continues unabated. Uh, another headline about a, a Palestinian shot after allegedly attempting to enter a West Bank solution. The attempts at fixing the solution seem to now be resting on the dubious shoulders of Jared Kushner, who apparently has a new fund, according to the Wall Street Journal, to invest Saudi money, of all things, in Israel. Um, the settlers continue. Uh, 4,000 new settler units are apparently about to be approved by the new government. And we hear that the coalition would fall. I'm not sure if that's a threat or a promise if the settlement homes um, plan for these new 4,000 uh, settlements are not okayed. Um, so what are we going to talk about? My guest today on the show um, is very much of an old hand um, on Israel. I'm not sure if she's probably quite sick of talking about it. She's been talking about it for many years. Her name is Joanne Mort. She has many articles on Israel. She works for Dissent Magazine, amongst others. And she's joining us from Brooklyn in New York. Uh, Joanne, um, happy Sunday. It's probably not particularly happy if you're thinking about Israel. Am I wrong to suggest that history just keeps on repeating itself when it comes to this seemingly eternal struggle in Israel between uh, the Palestinians and, and the Israelis, or am I getting it wrong? I, I don't think you're getting it wrong, but I, I would say this, and everything that you said is exactly, alas, up to date. Um, it is like It is possible that the current government could fall this week or soon which may or not be which may or may not be good news i mean maybe i actually think it's that. very bad news and we can talk more about that perhaps i don't think it's good news at all um but i but i first want to say something about history and this feeling you know that that we're in this endlessly i want to say two things about that one is um there's there was a time i think when this struggle started to move from a national struggle or political struggle for the, what I believe to be the rights of two peoples to, to land on which they both sit to a religious struggle. And, you know, I think we know historically that any time, I mean, nationalism, fighting over nationalism can be dangerous enough. Fighting over religion is really <laughs> a near impossibility to resolve. Um, 
And so what you have now is you have two extremes fighting it out on either side and, and largely in control. You have the settlers and the ideological religious Jews on one side, and then you have the Hamas um, on the other side. They're the ones taking, at least taking credit for these, um, these newest attacks. And in fact, the head of Hamas, uh, Sinwar, was quoted yesterday saying um, that, that, that people, that Palestinians should rise up with axes and knives against Israelis. He claimed this latest attack of these three people who, by the way, lived inside Israel. They were not settlers. Um, he claimed that as a great victory, that they were hatcheted to pieces. So when that's what we're dealing with on both sides, it can become very, very difficult. I'd say the same voices on both sides are very marginalized at the moment, and that's a real problem. You did an interesting interview um, in 2019 with the then uh, Palestinian Authority Prime Minister, Mohammed Shatter. Right. Um, are these people... I mean, I, I take your point on the religious nature of the war, but the, the Palestinian Authority people, the secularists or supposed secularists, they've had many years to fix this. They haven't done a lot, nor have the secularists on the other side of the coast. Right. So why, Mohammed, why, should we, why should we bemoan the religiosity now of the conflict? Well, for, for that's, I mean, that's both a good question and as everything with the Middle East, with Israel and Palestine, a complicated question. Mohammed Shtai is still the prime minister. Um, he is a secularist. He comes from Fatah. Um, he is weak, as is his government under um, under um, Abu Mazen, um, Mahmoud um, um, Abbas. Um, it's um, uh, it's weak for many reasons. Um, uh, there is a lot of corruption there, for one, a lot of corruption, uh, which is very problematic. It has, it was empowered, the Palestinian Authority was empowered around the Oslo Accords, which we could spend an entire show on, at least, if not more than one show. on. spend a year on that. Exactly, Jared. on the failure and successes of Oslo, but in retrospect, you know, certainly significant failures, although I think there were also successes. But one of the failures was that it did set up this provisionary so-called government. It's a quasi-government. And it has very little power except the power to police its own people. And it's done that sadly quite well. And it's made a lot of enemies among its own people. And secondly, it lost the power of Gaza. It doesn't control, there is the, the Palestinian Authority and the secularists, the Fatah people have zero control in Gaza. Gaza, you know, Israel controls the border of Gaza and keeps a blockade going, which is problematic in itself. But I think people talk too infrequently, and especially the left talks too infrequently, about the reality of Hamas, what it represents, the kind of rule that it is um, engaging in in Gaza, and the enmity between Hamas and Fatah. And, you know, it, it's, it's a sort of success story that is going to come back to bite both the Israelis and I think much of the world, because the division, I say success ironically, because the division of Hamas and Fatah, the division of Gaza and the West Bank, has kept has kept alive an inability to negotiate a peace. Um, and you know the status quo is where a lot of people think it should be, especially right wing politicians in Israel and even some center centrist politicians in Israel. I don't think that there is such a thing as 
as so as you, you mentioned this cleavage between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. It was the Palestinian Authority that was fetishized for so long, which many people believe legitimized Hamas. But wouldn't it be fair to say that even Hamas now is a, a relatively centrist organization and there are groups, I don't know whether you'd call them to the left or the right of Hamas, but groups which are much more radical, more nihilistic, more committed to violence. At what point will this process stop? Not just amongst the Palestinians, but also amongst the Israelis, whereas centrists yesterday now are considered leftists and it goes on and on and on. Yeah. So, so I don't think that Hamas is necessarily has, it hasn't become a centrist organization. It's still very religious. And as I said, you know, yesterday, the head of the organization was calling for taking axes to Israelis inside, inside Israel, not settlers necessarily, but that doesn't mean that Hamas shouldn't be negotiated with. I believe that you negotiate with your enemy and Hamas needs to be negotiated with. The other thing is that Hamas has, you know, you you posted up that photo of um, of Jared Kushner for with for whatever reason the Saudis have given him money. Um, there are people, the, the Qataris especially, are are big financial players in this, and with Hamas especially, and and so there there are global players that are calling are holding purse strings that could be movable. There are parties to the it's not to the left of the more radical, you know, more religiously radical and and more splintered, smaller groups um, to, from um, Hamas, which is Islamic Jihad and others. There is the whole issue of the terrorism that's now coming out of the Janine refugee camp, and um, which is where a lot of these attackers have come from most recently. And it's a very depressing place, the Janine refugee camp. To put, and, it, mild, I think yeah, we, to put it mildly. You need a stronger word than depressing, yeah. Joanne. You're there, clearly I, on the left. You, you wrote yeah. a book. Um, uh, in 2003, our hearts invented a place. Couldn't kibbutzim survive in today's Israel? Uh, you wrote an interesting piece recently about the project, again, an interesting word, of rebuilding the Israeli left. Is there an Israeli left? What, what should an Israeli left be? And should the crisis of the Israeli left, is it the same crisis that's affecting Palestinian secularists? Well, first of all, there is an Israeli left, um, and there it's it it's not it's it's interesting question. I hadn't really honestly thought of it in that way. It's not dissimilar in some sense to at least some of the Palestinian secularists, but there is a real problem right now. There, it's a weakened left, um, and it put it, it mildly. I mean, depending again mildly, where you compare exactly. it with. Which is why I said, which is, by the way, why I think it's important to keep the current government going. The, the fact is that the left and even the center does not have the ability in this current government, which is a center-right left government. They don't have the ability to pull the strings. The, the power right now is on the right because the parties, the government will topple if the right-wing parties leave. And the people waiting out there in the pool of... Uh, you know, a new government to be to be put together are mostly right wing or all right wingers, pretty much, except for the joint list, the Arab list. So um, the, the strength in Israel right now and the street or what we call what they when you talk about Israeli politics, you talk about the, the camp, the left camp, the right camp, the peace camp. The, the left wing camp is weak for a range of historical and socio reasons, socio and economic reasons. 
Um, but there is a left there, and it's an interesting left, and, and I've written about this, as you mentioned. I think it's an interesting left precisely because it's a younger left now. I mean, there's an old left, people like me, my friends, who have been doing this for decades, but there's an emerging young left that is Jewish and Arab together. These are Palestinian citizens of Israel. In other words, people who live within the internationally recognized green line of Israel, uh, who live in Haifa, who live in Jaffa, who live in Um al-Fakham and a range of places. Um, and are Jewish and Arab coming together trying to create a new kind of politics. Um, and um, the only way that the left in Israel is ever going to reemerge in any with any strength is going to is going to have to grow from that combined politics. The numbers, you know, when we talk about the, the left in Israel, mostly you are talking about the quote Jewish left. It's a very segregated political society and segregated in other ways, of course, too. And historically, Jews and Arabs did not vote together, did not work together, campaign together in terms of politics, but that's changing with this younger generation. And that's that's the most important and I think positive thing. Now on the other side, the problem is on the Palestinian side, especially among Palestinian civil society, there is what they call an anti-normalization um, campaign, which is part of the global BDS campaign to boycott Israel and to not engage politically with Israelis. And I will always tell and write about, um, but tell anyone who wants to hear from me in Ramallah or anywhere else that I think this is a mistake because I think that the only way we're gonna get past this is to engage across these barriers and not demonize either peoples. And there's been, there's been a move- isn't that an equivalence that drives some critics of Israel insane that somehow they're, these two opponents equally weighted, equally morally justified, and, and, and you know that that's not the case. It's not the case, and I don't say that. I say, and in fact, when I talk to my Palestinian friends, what I say to them is don't talk about normalizing the situation. Talk about creating an equal situation. Talk about ending the oppression of the occupation. But how are we going to do it? You can't do it by ignoring and not talking to the very people who are oppressing you, which is what they're trying to do and what they are doing. Um, you know, they're, they're, we have to somehow get the people back in the room who share a vision. And that's not happening right now. And that's a, that's a real problem. What do you think of you? And you wrote about this, some of the boycotts, the Ben and Jerry's boycott, for example. Do you approve of some of the, shall we call it anti-Israel or anti-Zionist lobby that are committed to boycotting Israeli products? Israeli writers, Israeli voices, is, do, do they have a point? I know. So there, I think there are two different kinds of quote boycotts. I do not, not only do I not approve of the boycott movement, I write about it and oppose it from the left whenever I can, as I was mentioning before. But what I do support is making a distinction as was done in Ben and Jerry's, I believe, making a distinction between settlement products or the economic empowerment of the settlers and the settlements, in other words, everything outside the Green Line in the West Bank, and then inside Israel, there is a distinction to be made. So for instance, I will not buy wine that is made in a, just to pull out a name, Pizza Goat, which is a large settlement in the West Bank that has a very active and increasingly you know, externalized um, winery. And I oh, yeah, and, and Biden's in trouble. I'm not sure if he was uh, not Biden, there, but Biden's in trouble for drinking wine from one of the settlements. Yeah, Isn't this it was inside the, the Beltway stuff, Joanne? I mean, most people 
aren't really able to distinguish between no, but, but, so, but it's an important distinction to be made for those who are playing this game. There's a really important distinction, and, and there are people who can differentiate. The EU differentiates. The European Union marks products saying made in Israel or not. I mean, it's very easy. You just say made in Israel. And if it's not so, made so what in Israel, you're saying is if it's made on a settlement, not made in Israel. it can't be made in Israel. Oh, exactly. Exactly. But what happens when the settlements become part of Israel then? Well, that's a whole other ballgame. I'm curious, uh, uh, Joanne, you say you're coming from the left as a you're a very frequent writer for dissent. You've spent many years involved, quote unquote, on the left. What puts you on the left? Some people will be listening to this and thinking, this woman doesn't sound any more left than, than my uncle. Not that I'm mentioning anyone's uncle, of course. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I've been on the left my entire what life. What does that mean, being on the uh, left? I'm, I mean, we've heard this for years. What does it mean? What does it mean to be on the left? Um, In terms of Israel, particularly. I believe that, well, I came originally to my interest on the left from Israel, actually from Israeli socialism, from the kibbutz. As you mentioned, I wrote a book about the kibbutz. I was in a youth movement when I was 16 years old that was part of a political party that is no longer in existence in Israel called Mapam, which was known as the Workers' Party. Um, I, I learned about socialism and economic democracy from my engagement, actually, with Israel. Um, I believe wholeheartedly that the, um, and I've been since for a very long time active with, I'm a, was a vice chair and I'm the head of the policy committee for Americans for Peace Now, which is affiliated with Shalom Akshav Peace Now, the Israeli, the Israeli peace movement. Um, and, and I believe wholeheartedly that Israel deserves to exist, that the Jews deserve, we Jewish people not only deserve, but need some sort of national self-determination, but not at the expense of the Palestinian people who deserve the same. So that's what makes me, I believe. Well, I think I think that, but it doesn't put me on the left. Why does that? Again, I, I still don't really understand why it puts you on the left. Well, it doesn't put me on the right. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's um, it is. I mean, it sounds fair, but, you know, maybe that's perhaps that's what you're implying, that it sounds fair. And of course, both people deserve this. But the reality is that when you start this kind of um, um, debate around Israel, it devolves very quickly to one side is here. The other side is here. Somebody always has to be on top. And when they're on when someone's on top and the other's on the bottom, I don't believe that is being. I don't believe that's being representative of the left or anything that's progressive or equal or fair. You know, you can call it left or right. I call it, I, you know, it's, it's, it's just as easy to say or just as, I think, um, descriptive to say we're talking about fairness and justice for both. Joanne, we did a show um, a few weeks ago. It's a wonderful new book by a Canadian, yeah, by Canadian uh, journalist, Matty Friedman. Right, I know him, yeah. About Leonard Cohen's visit in October 1973 during the Yom Kippur War to the Sinai. Um, what struck me actually, interestingly enough, about the book was how dramatically everything's changed since 1973. Yes. When, uh, again, someone who I think would have defined themselves on the left, Cohen was, Leonard Cohen, was, was proud to come to Israel and actually be willing to fight for the Israelis. Do you think 73 is the key date in terms of making sense of what's happened 
it's so easy to pick different dates. Yeah. I know it's a very, very complicated history, but is there a particular year in your mind when everything changed? Well, let me first say, Leonard Cohen, if he were alive, would still come to Israel. He came to Israel right before he died, and he wanted to perform both inside Israel and wanted to do a benefit for the Palestinians. The Palestinians said no to him. They said, you can come to us or you can go to Israel. But because of this anti-normalization situation, he, 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 they made him choose. And he chose Israel. And he then left all the money that he made in Israel for a joint fund for Israel-Palestinian um, education and engagement. So he did still come and leftists are still going there. Um, I don't think 73 was the date. I think 67 was the date. 67 was not only a time when Israel did feel itself very realistically threatened, but also that was when the settlements, when it captured the West Bank and the settlement expansion began. And there was a mistake and it was across, it was a consensus left, right and center in Israel then more center than left, but that the settlements could, you know, they're nice Jewish boys. They can go create a settlement in the middle of the night, somewhere in the West Bank. No one's going to pay attention to it. There was no understanding of the rise of what became a religious messianic movement. And, 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 and then with that, the rise of the, um, the terror attacks and, and an inability and unwillingness within Israeli society to see the Palestinians as people. And once you dehumanize someone on both sides, it becomes very hard to, to create peace. That what happened in 73 was something different. It was really the end of the Labor Party, which had been the ruling center left party for since Israel's founding, because the war caught everybody by surprise. And it was a Labor Party in government. Um, it was seen as a real disaster on the part of their leadership. And that was part of the beginning of the weakening of the Labor Party as a ruling. Jo 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 Joanne, um Another headline today is that apparently Putin is sorry. I don't know if that word really exists in his vocabulary, but he's yeah. formally sorry for his foreign minister's claim that Hitler was part Jewish. Do you think, again, looking back, the real change in Israel perhaps weren't either the wars, uh, the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, but the influx of Ruf Russian refugees that changed the entire uh, ideological spectrum in Israel made the death of the left almost inevitable, given the kinds of Jews who came to Israel after Russia opened up? Um, I would put that a little differently. There was a hope among the sort of camp that I would be part of where I living in Israel, that the, Ru the Russian immigrants coming to Israel would become part of a secular centrist Israel that would challenge the rise of the ultra-Orthodox, which we haven't even talked about, but that's a huge issue inside Israel and a, and a growing, I would say, problem in quotes. Um, uh, and that didn't happen precisely because that population was quite right-wing. Um, you know, there's a new wave now of immigrants coming in, Ukrainians and Russians, and it's not clear where they will be because what you do see is you see a, a beginning shift in that Russian population, the Russian Jewish population, the Ukrainian Jewish population, as the next generation, as the older generation ages out. Younger people are getting more integrated into Israeli society and their politics are becoming more 
typical of a broad range of Israeli um, politics than sticking with one political party that is a right-wing party chaired by Avigdor Lieberman, who's the current finance minister. How do we write about Israel? You've been writing about Israel one way or the other, Joanne, all, all, you, all your life. We've done a number of shows featuring authors of books on Israel. Daniel Sokach, who sort of presents himself as a centrist. Can we talk about Israel? A guide for the curious, confused and conflicted. Then Noah Tishby, who is anything but a centrist, trying That's to right. essentially excuse everything about Israel, saying that it's the most misunderstood country on earth. Is there any particular individual who you think people should read in terms of making sense of Israel in addition to yourself? And your I was going to say, other than what I write. Um, yeah, I think there are a lot. It is a very difficult place to write about for, for lots of the reasons we've talked about and more. Um, I do think there are certain people, certain journalists writing now who are really quite good um, in in Haaretz, which first of all, I think Haaretz newspaper is indispensable in English for those who want to follow Israeli news. Um, Anshel Pfeffer, who was actually originally from Britain, but grew up in Israel, I think is, is a terrific, terrific reporter. And um, um, I think necessary reading. Um, the, um, uh, you know, it used to be easy to say that there were novelists from Israel that you could follow and read. Right now, I think the only one who's actively writing is David Grossman. Yeah, David Grossman, who a number of people, I, I once went to the Maracana Stadium in Rio with, for a football match with him. He's a lovely man. Really lovely man. He's also what they call in Israel a bereaved parent. His son he, his son yeah. was killed in the war that he opposed, um, the recent, the more, most recent war with Lebanon. Um uh, he is somebody who's also would call himself a leftist very much in the peace camp um, and speaks out quite often. There are organ I would say, um, trying to think of who would be published in English right now. Um, there, I would say the most important thing rather than looking for readers is looking at some of the organizations that are out there who keep up very active US uh, or English language websites organizations like Physicians for Human Rights Israel, Peace Now, um, uh, Association for Civil Rights in Israel. Those are three organizations that where I'm, I'm affiliated with all three of those. They, they keep up very lively websites and are really doing the day-to-day -day work. There's also an organization called Shovrim Shitka, um, Breaking the Silence, which is a group of very brave and tireless young soldiers who have served in the Israeli army in occupied Hebron and write about that on a regular basis. Um, there is, there is, there's a, there, there's a groups, there are other groups like that. You can, you know, once you start looking and digging into the websites, you'll find others starting to hear the voices of the people who are out there and doing this work, I think is really, really important. Joanne, what do you make of, I don't know if this is the right word, revisionist Western Jewish writers, younger ones like Dara Horn, who, are, who write in an incredibly uh, angry um, way about the Holocaust and the way in which we fetishized young Western women like Anne Frank. Do you think that Jews in the West are over preoccupied with the Holocaust, with the experience of the Jews in, uh, in, in under the Nazis, and that um, we have to get beyond it. Yeah, I have, 
I haven't read, I've started to read Dara Horn's new book. I haven't finished she's it. She's very um, good and she's a wonderful interview. I really enjoyed talking yeah, to her. I, I don't know that, I haven't really followed that thesis. I will say there's not, I don't think there's any th such thing as not, not paying enough attention to the Holocaust. I don't think that, um, and, I, and I was in, I've, I've personally become obsessed in the last few years with Poland, partly my own family background, Poland and Ukraine, both, um, but have been spending a lot of time there and pre-COVID and, you know, I did on my own go to Auschwitz and it's hard to get that out of your head once you've been there. I don't think, I don't think when we say never again that I do think there's a there's both a particularistic aspect to it and a universalist aspect. In other words, I don't think we the Jews should I think we should be fearful of what could come, but we shouldn't allow that fear to stop us from having a universalistic concern for others. And you know, that's obvious in the current situation with Ukraine. Um, and we shouldn't allow the Holocaust to let us hide from what we are doing to another people also. I don't think it's comparable at all to the Holocaust, but I do think, you know, let me say something that's controversial that will probably get me in trouble with some people I work with and know, but I celebrate personally Israel's Independence Day. I mean, I feel strongly about Israel. I, you know, could see the joy in its independence, which just passed this last week. But I was troubled by all of the official festivities that have no lack of, no mention whatsoever of the occupation. In other words, I think Israel is, you know, I don't want to give a percentage because I'll, whoever, whatever I say percentage-wise, someone will say, oh, that's not enough or it's too much. But there's a percentage in anything that you do where there's the good and the bad. And, you know, I, I was a student of philosophy in graduate school and I think of Hegel's master-slave metaphor all the time. And I don't think Israel will truly be free until the Palestinians are also free. So I think that we always have to look at both sides of this and whether it is Israel currently... You don't really. I, I mean, that's that's the centrist position, though, isn't it? That's the uh, that's the Daniel Solkach position. Daniel that we always Solkach, have to look at both sides. That's given, Joanne. Everybody well, knows I, that. I think of Daniel more of a, as a leftist than a centrist. New Israel Fund, which he heads, is certainly considered a left-wing organization in Israel. But um, no, I don't. I don't know of any centrist politician in Israel who would say that right now publicly. The current foreign minister of Israel is a centrist. He's the leading political centrist in the country. Yet you're Lapid. If you said to him on Israel's Independence Day, should Israel also be marking the occupation of the Palestinians? No, he would say no. This is our day. We celebrate this. There was an event on for on on that's very controversial in Israel. Combatants for peace, along with the Breaking the Silence group that I mentioned, which Combatants for Peace are Israeli um, Palestinians, are Israeli Jews and Palestinians, both of whom were fighters in one way or another, who came to come together and work together. And they do an alternate Memorial Day celebration or memorial each year that commemorates death on both sides. That's a very controversial thing in Israel. Since COVID, it's been going online. They had 200,000 people tuning into that this year. Um, that's, to me, the way to commemorate um, both the Memorial Days for Israel and also its, its independence. Joanne, you're also well known as a, as a poet. Uh, you've had a number of uh, poems uh, published. Is poetry for you, particularly when it comes to Israel, is it a way of forgetting? Is it a retreat? Or, or can one remain political in poetry? And is that one of the goals of your poetry? 
That's a great question. Thank you for asking me that. I think that poetry for me now at this point in my life, because I came back to it after not writing for 20 some years and felt that it wasn't political enough, but I now realize there are so many both political voices out there in poetry, but also that poetry, you know, I came back to poetry during the Trump years and I felt like I needed something to soothe my soul and to feel like there is a longevity and and something bigger and better in life than what we were seeing in front of us and, and being subjected to. Historically, I will say in Israel and Palestine, both poets have played and continue to play an important role. Mahmoud Darwish, the Palestinian national poet, I think is one of the best poets ever to have lived. There's a wonderful little museum near Ramallah and outside of Ramallah that's um, in his memory that I would recommend to anyone to go visit. Yehuda Amichai, the, who was a national Israeli poet uh, who I studied with at NYU in graduate school was very much a voice of peace. And um, his poem was actually used in this Combatants for Peace Memorial the other day um, when they spoke. So I think poetry can speak to people in a human voice and bring things, bring humanity to light in a way that the polemical cannot, polemical, polemical debate cannot. Well, let's end with that. Uh, you, you had an interesting post from a couple of years ago, poets that I'm reading now. You mentioned, um, you mentioned Darwish. Anyone else that people should read, not just on the Arab-Israeli conflict, yeah. but perhaps some Polish, Polish poets or anyone that... Yes, there are two. There's one poet I'd really like to 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 plug for the, at the moment. He's a Ukrainian poet, um, Serhiy Zadan, and I actually happen to have his book right here with me. Um, it's his collected poems or selected poems: "What We Live For," "What We Die For." Serhiy, this was written um, before the current part of the war. This was a lot of these poems were written when Russia was simply occupying the eastern part of Ukraine. He lives in Kharkiv. He is there now. Um, and um, he's an extraordinary, extraordinary poet. There, there are others like him, Ukrainian poets right now, and Polish poets um, uh, uh, that are um, uh, Adam Zagajowski, whose name I've just mm. screwed yeah. up. Um, You're doing better than me. Do, do you think? Um, do you think Israelis have something, or perhaps more Palestinians have something to teach the Ukrainians that these two conflicts are in some ways similar? I don't think they're at all similar. And I see on social media that the Palestinians who are active on social media, which is mostly the younger Palestinians, are trying to make it comparable. I don't I honestly just don't see it as comparable at all. No. I just don't. Well, Joanne Moore, Dissent Magazine. You are by nature a dissenter. It's excellent to talk <laughs> to you. Uh, finally, Joanne, um asking this of everybody on my show and interesting, but curious as to your answer. <laughs> Who runs the world uh, in, in early May 2022, Joanne Mort? Who's in charge? I'd have to say Vladimir Putin is running our world, and it's a very scary world at that. I think that whoever is willing to go to the lowest common denominator sort of wins the gold, the gold uh, ring.